from chapter 2 and beginning in verse 4. God says, it's important to remember that this is God's word. This is what he is saying. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a choice stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you not, now you are God's people. Once you had not, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. And please be seated. We'll go before the Lord, ask him to, to bless the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. What a blessing it is to have the completed canon of scripture, all that we need to know for life and for salvation. Father, we just pray for the preaching of your word across not only uh, the city here, but as as Richard has said, even across the whole world, that, uh, th- that you would bless the preaching of your word as it is rightly preached. May your spirit be present uh, in all of those churches that as your word goes out, that you would accomplish all of your holy purpose. For us, our Father, we would pray that you make the man behind the lectern small and enlarge your word, that you would cause uh, us to see Christ uh, in your word and to be able to, as a result, give you praise and honor. And may we exalt the name of Jesus uh, this hour as, as we hear from him. His name we pray. Amen. Well, this is now uh, the eighth sermon that I've had from First Peter, and it's always a little difficult to preach uh, through a book when, when uh, you don't preach regularly uh, week after week. Uh, but nonetheless, um, God is faithful. Uh, Peter began uh, with this um, epistle, this book, as he wrote to the churches of Asia Minor for, uh, for, uh, for two purposes. He, he began uh, so that he might uh, encourage uh, the believers who were suffering persecution and that he would be able to exhort them onto godly living onto a fruitful life. And we began our walk through this drama of redemptive history in 1 Peter by reciting what God had done. Recitals are simply something that is a statement of truth or a statement of fact, or in our case, a statement of doctrine. And we had four sermons on positional doctrine, what God has done in order to save a people for his own possession. 
And having done that, we are changed. As it's, it's God's grace that has caused this to happen, uh, and, and we are changed. So we have the first therefore in the book in, in verse 13 of the first chapter. Therefore, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we also have uh, in that first chapter a, a call to obedience and moving uh, from our former passions to be holy, to be changed, to be different, moving from the old to the new. And as a result, we are changed. We are to pursue holiness. We are to be holy, verse 16. And in that uh, pursuit of holiness, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and next, to love our fellow man. And the next three sermons, then, this will be the third of, of uh, sermons uh, relative to uh, loving man, or more specifically, loving the church, loving the community. And in verse 22, it, it spoke of, of having a pure uh, love uh, uh, from the heart uh, because we are, are born again. And then we were to put aside those vices that uh, cause the destruction of a church. The malice, the envy, the deceit, uh, the, the slander, and the hypocrisy. So we are to put those aside. And, and so we are arrived now this morning in verse 4, the third sermon on the community, the body of believers. And as I read verse 4, look for the four characters that are uh, being presented in this drama. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Did you find them? First we have, as you. Now you could think of that individually, but I'm going to encourage you to think of that uh, collectively as the community of believers, because that's the context. As you come to him, that is, to Christ. And that's the focus of this sermon, even as is the focus uh, of all of Scripture. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. The men would be the, the unbelieving world who rejects the gospel, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we have the church, we have Christ, and we have the unbelieving world we have God, our Heavenly Father. And it begins in this section of Scripture by saying, as you come to Him. And when you read that, you understand that this is something that is active and something that is ongoing. This is a process, not unlike verse 1, uh, as Peter writes there, saying, therefore putting aside or so put away these vices. It's active. It's a process. And it's all based way back on verse 23 of having been born again. Having been born again. We, we hear that, and we should hear the doctrine of regeneration. Now, Genesis means beginning. Generation is, is also beginning. Regeneration means a new beginning or a new life. Because remember from Ephesians 2, we're dead, spiritually dead, unresponsive to the things of God without power or ability at all to respond to the gospel. But God, but God, God acted out of his mercy, out of his grace, 
He extended to us, uh, out of his mercy and grace, he extended to us his love. He chose us, he justified us, and as a result, we have a new disposition. Being dead, we are now alive. Being dead, we have been raised up with him. Even as Christ was resurrected, so it is that we have been made alive and resurrected and having been under the wrath of God, it says now we are seated with God in heavenly, position, uh, heavenly places. Having a position, as Peter uh, writes in the, in the first chapter, a position of sonship. So the new birth changes us. It changes our point of view, how we see things, how we process things. And this is called sanctification. So we are to put away the passions of our former ignorance, to put aside. And for the Christian, if there is no change, there is probably no justification. You cannot be justified and not be changed. That's just the fact. God will change you. So for the Christian, there is no peace within us with sin. We are to put that aside. Born again. It's the beginning of a, of a lifelong process, and as I said, called sanctification. Therefore, we come to him as you come to him. What does that mean? It means we come to know him. We come to know him. Most, most often by simply the ordinary means of grace. The first of those is coming to know his word. You're here. You're sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's word. That's coming to know him. We have the community prayers, the communal prayers, uh, where, where we, we go before him as a body. We're called Calvary Community Church. Community. Something in common. We have something in common. Uh, there's, there's a unity. It literally means uh, a common oneness. Community. Calvary Community Church. We are able to partake of the ordinances, which are visible pictures of a spiritual or inward reality in baptism and in the Lord's table. And lastly, we are able to discipline one another. And again, I've said this before, not necessarily talking about Matthew 18 discipline, but as we gather, as we talk, as we encourage one another, as we exhort one another, we are disciplining one another. So it's the ordinary means of grace that God most often uses to come to him. And as a result, we come to rely on him and to trust him in all circumstances. All circumstances, whether they be uh, favorable or unfavorable, whether they be good or, or bad, we come to trust him. And we learn these things so that when the crisis comes, we're able to turn to God and, and believe that it is for our good. We acknowledge his sovereignty, and we gather in right worship, learning who he is, what his attributes are, and what he has done. That's how Peter began uh, the letter. This is what God has done. The Father has done this. The Son has done that. The Spirit has done this. Therefore, we have a living hope. And so the circumstances of life cannot knock us off that uh, point of living hope. We read uh, uh, this morning, um, Jake read for us, 
from, from Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And I, and I just uh, would encourage you to either follow along on the, on the screen or, or to turn to it there. And I won't read the whole of the, of the uh, uh, passage because it's already been read. So for sake of time, we'll just want to draw out a few points. So we go before God, it says, in confidence, in confidence. And we go before God through the blood of Jesus. And goes on to say that he is our great priest, our great high priest, if you were to read on in Hebrews. And then he has some imperatives. We are to draw near in the same way as we are to come to him. That's the command of God. We are to grow in grace. We are to hold fast to that which he has given us and let nothing bump us off of, of the focus that we need to have of the revealed word of God. We are to stir up one another to love and good works, in encouragement and in exhortation. We are to meet together, meet together, that we might partake of the ordinary means of grace and encouraging one another. This is a description of the Christian life. It's a description of a fruitful life. Bears fruit for the sake of the kingdom. It's a description of a majestic life coming to him. And then, to finish that, that verse, it says that we come to him a living stone a living stone, as to a living stone. Now, a couple of weeks ago on, on Wednesday evening, um, Pastor Logan spoke of uh, such things as similes and metaphors. And metaphors are, are something that, that will not necessarily uh, be true verbatim, but they represent a truth and something that you can see. And if you're going to learn anything today, that you're going to learn that this passage is full of metaphors. And they build on one another. They reach a crescendo. And we're not able to gather for uh, our children's challenge, but I know of nothing that says that we can't incorporate that right into the service. So, children, have I got your attention? What have I got here? Rock, okay, another name for it? Thank you, young man. Yes, a rock or a stone, okay? It was sitting down here by my feet. Did you see it crawl out from under there? Did you? No? Yes? No? Has this stone been able to speak to you this morning? No? I can't hear you. Okay, speak up, young folks. Can this go and talk? Why not? Why can't it? It doesn't have life. Thank you. It doesn't have life. It's inert. It's dead. It is absolutely without life. Okay? That's our stone. I'm going to set it right here, if I might, since we haven't got the elements of the communion table on here. Otherwise, I wouldn't but you can look at it. It does not have life. Uh, and um, uh, 
we come to Jesus as a living stone. As a living stone. Now, the, the people in the day of Jesus would have a, a fuller understanding of what this meant than perhaps we, we do. By the end of the hour, I hope you do as well. Jesus was raised by Joseph, a carpenter. And we think of carpenters as one who works with wood, right? You have framing carpenters, and you've got finished carpenters, and that. But in Jesus' day, a carpenter worked not only with wood, but with stone. Those were the building materials of the day. So this would have, be, this would have been a very uh, understandable uh, metaphor for the people of Jesus' day. And it says we come to him as a living stone. Okay? We all said the stone was dead, but the Bible says there's a living stone. This is the metaphor. So there's something different about Jesus than this stone that we have right here on the table. And if you think about the life of Jesus, he actually was dead at one time physically, but he was made alive. He was resurrected. He was as dead as a stone, but he was made alive, and people saw that. And this stone, it says, was rejected by men, yet choice and precious in the sight of God, chosen by God, elect of God, and exalted by God. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, where it speaks of Jesus taking on the form of a man and to, uh, to become a servant and obedient even unto death, that at the, uh, that, uh, even to the point of death, therefore God exalted him and gave him the name above every name uh, and that, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. So God, it says, exalted him. He is chosen and precious by the Father. And in verse uh, 6, it goes on to say, and this is a, a passage from Isaiah 28, in verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the metaphor advances from a stone to a living stone, and now a cornerstone, chosen and precious. We're not, again, as familiar with the, with the cornerstone in today's building world, but generally it was a, a larger stone, and the foundation of a, of a structure led to this cornerstone. It might have been at the, the intersection of, of, of the foundation or foundation walls, and the building was measured off of this cornerstone. It was squared off of this cornerstone so that the building could be built correctly and that it would be stable and that it would be strong and that, that it would be lasting. So the, the cornerstone had a very important function in the building of this structure. Now there's a second element that we're maybe a little more familiar with that is sometimes called a, a cornerstone. It's called a keystone. And we're probably more familiar with it. 
As you enter the church today, I don't know if you've noticed all these years that we've been coming through those doors, but the, at the arches above the windows, there's a different stone. In fact, it's a different color. It's set apart. It's different. It's the keystone. And that, that's normally where you find a keystone, and in the top of arches, over windows or doors, or, or maybe uh, in a structure, in a bridge. Certainly in, in uh, uh, the days of antiquity, bridges were built with that keystone. And it was key, because the removal of that stone meant that the whole structure would fall apart. It got its strength uh, from that keystone and removal would cause failure. Well, in either case, whether we're talking about a keystone or a cornerstone, it is critical to the stability of that structure to keep it, to hold it together. It gives it its strength. Paul addresses this as well in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And beginning in verse 19, he says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. Clearly, Jesus is being revealed by Paul and also by Peter as the chosen and precious cornerstone. It is living, and it's a life-giving stone, and it's God's doing, because at the beginning of that verse, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone. This is the work of the Father, the omniscient, omnipotent uh, God who created all things. This is his doing, God. But still, in our fallen world, world, there is another view. And in verse 7, last half of verse 7, we read, and we read it this morning already in, in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone in Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Another view of this stone. Rejected. Now, if something is rejected, the assumption is, is that it has been inspected, that it has been examined. And to be rejected, it would be found to be unfit for the building of a nation, or unfit for the building of God's church. Think of the religious leaders of the day of Jesus. They were searching for the Messiah, and in their mind, that Messiah would be a king that would remove the Roman army from their country that was occupying uh, their, their nation. That was what they were looking for, and they considered the claims of Christ. We find the, the leaders of, of, the, of the Jewish people, the religious leaders, that were going out and hearing Jesus speak. And they considered his claims. And he failed to meet their expectation. He was not what they anticipated. He was found unfit 
to be their Messiah, in their view, useless, unworthy to be cast aside, discarded as of no value. And the first readers of, of this epistle could identify that, that be, with that because they also, because of their faith, because their faith led them to a different practice, they were maligned and intimidated and distressed, and their faith was found to be of no value to those who were persecuting that first church. And there are those today, people that you and I may have shared the gospel with. They've examined the claims of Christ. They've examined our words, and they found them to be unworthy. That is, that not, they didn't want to build a life around the claims of Christ, of no value. But the reality is, is that every person, every person who has ever lived, living today or will live, will have to find Christ as either the means of salvation or the means of judgment. Remember Philippians 2. Every day, or at one point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then we come to verse 8. Last part of, uh, of verse 8. It says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. Peter's writings are, are full of doctrine. And we've already uh, rehearsed some of that in previous sermons regarding the, the doctrine of election and the, and the doctrine of predestination. But the doctrine of predestination has another side. There's another side to the coin. It's known as the doctrine of reprobation. We also read of it in Jude, uh, verse 4, in Proverbs 16. But even in Reformed circles, it can be difficult to wrap your arms around this doctrine. And people may ask, how can a loving God predestine some unto judgment? How can a loving God predestine some to sin? Have you been asked that question? If you see a few nods, how did you answer? It's a short answer. He doesn't. He doesn't. This is where it's important for us to have a grasp on church history. The question is not unlike uh, uh, the, the 16th century false doctrine of destinari et peccatum. Now, this is our Latin lesson for today. Okay? We already talked about what a peccadillo was, a peccari, a peccati. Uh, peccatum is an, a, another variation of that word. And in the past, we've talked about that. We know what it means if something is impeccable. Right? Without fault. Literally without sin. So this peccatum is a reflection of something that is faulted or, or sin. So destinari et peccatum means destined to sin. It's a false doctrine. It says that God causes people to sin. And on, on first view, as they were destined to do, 
you may think that that has some validity. But it would also mean that God would be the author of sin. But we need to note the text. It says, destined to stumble, not predestined. There's a big difference in that. We need to read carefully. They stumble because they disobey the word. They stumble because of their disobedience. And maybe this could be more easily understood by by this example. If someone were uh, to commit a crime, uh, it was uh, observed uh, and uh, he was arrested, uh, and you would wonder, you wouldn't have to wonder very long, if he chooses to disregard the law, there's going to be consequences, right? That makes sense. If you partake in lawlessness, then you uh, could expect to be judged uh, uh, for that. So, if that would be the expectation, if you find one that would participate in this lawlessness, their destiny would be judgment. That's just what follows. And if one chooses to disregard the general call of God to come to Christ, that is, they disobey his word, their destiny unto judgment, not predestined, their destiny unto judgment, their stumbling is sure. But it is their choice, not God's. That's the the difference. But the argument goes, we cannot come without God's grace. That's true enough. In election, God is active in granting grace, uh, saving grace. And the cause of one's salvation is God's grace. In reprobation, God passes over some, leaving them in their sin. That is not unjust. God exposes no one to an injustice in that. They stumble because they disobey the word. And the result is their destiny is judgment. The cause of their judgment is their own sin. I think it would be helpful if we turn to the confession at this point because uh, the the vines that that, uh, put this together uh, back in the mid-1680s address this issue in chapter 3 of God's decree and in paragraph 3. It says, By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. To the praise of his glorious justice. So we see there that in election, God is patient. God extends mercy. God extends saving grace. And in reprobation, we see on display his power. We see on display his wrath, his righteousness, and his justice. So the whole drama of human history is designed to reveal the attributes of God, to reveal his glory, both in election and in reprobation. 
we praise God because of his attributes. So, we skipped over verse 5. I didn't forget it. We're going to jump back to that now. So Christ is a living stone, chosen and precious, but rejected by the world, rejected by man. And now the metaphor continues to advance. Verse 5, we read, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourself. Now the, the metaphor is, is focusing on the community of believers. And it says that Christ is not the only one who is elect. Christ is not the only one who is precious. And Christ is not the only living stone. New American Standard says, you also as living stones. So here we have a picture of us who also were dead, right? Spiritually dead, but now we're alive. Our union with Christ is such that his death is our death, and that his life is our life. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God. His life is our life as living stones. But we're not alone. We are united. We are joined together. Back to Ephesians 2, being built together, being built up as a spiritual house or as a holy Now, the church is not a building. Oftentimes, we want to make sure we talk about the gathering of the church as rather than going to church because we, as living stones, are the church. We're the, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the people of God, the body of believers, the community of saints. So the church, we would agree, is not a building. Yet, here Peter describes the church, us, as a spiritual house, but not alone, joined together. We are a building of living stones built up as a spiritual house. And if a building, we need a foundation, right? A building that is built without a foundation will not stand. And the foundation is that of the apostles and prophets. The foundation is the Word of God. It's the living, abiding, enduring Word of God, chapter 1, verse 23. And the foundation, again, is measured off the cornerstone. The foundation should point you to the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is none other than we've already discussed Christ himself. All of Scripture is, is pointing to Christ. If you don't find Christ in a passage of Scripture, you are not reading that passage correctly. All of Scripture is there to point us to Christ. So you see all these metaphors coming together, and, and I, I'm, I'm just going to read the Ephesians passage once again. 
that we are um, uh, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built up as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. And now the metaphor changes once again. It says, it changes from being built up as a spiritual house to those who are serving in that same spiritual house. Being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to a holy priesthood, holy, set apart. Have you ever thought of yourselves as priests? Have you ever thought of yourself as priests? In predestination, we have a position of sonship. Scripture tells us that we are living stones. Together, we are a holy temple. And now we serve in the church as priests. But how is it that we are priests? Because we are united to Christ, the great high priest. But wait, how is it that Jesus is a priest? He's not a Levite. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Yet in Hebrews, we are told that it says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we won't go there to read the the, the passage in Genesis 14 for the sake of time. But in in that passage, we have this uh, this, this, this figure, um, Melchizedek, and he is the king and priest of Salem. And in that passage, he blessed Abraham, and Abraham give, or Abram gave a tenth to Melchizedek, gave him a tithe. And in that economy, The superior blesses the subordinate, and the subordinate gives tithes to the superior. So Melchizedek was superior to Abram, who was superior to his son Isaac, who was superior to his son Jacob, who was superior to his son Levi, his son, and priest. So by extension, Melchizedek is superior to Levi, the priest. And furthermore, we are called not only to a priesthood, but to a royal priesthood. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we can't miss that, that one word, to a royal priesthood. In in. Back in, um, I think it's 2 Samuel uh, verse four, or chapter 14, we have Saul uh, impatiently waiting for Samuel to come to uh, give the sacrifice. And he didn't come according to the time that, that Saul thought, so he offered the sacrifice. And Samuel comes immediately thereafter and says, what have you done? If you had obeyed God, He would have established you forever, but such as it is, you're 
uh, the kingdom shall be taken from you and from your uh, descendants. Likewise, we have the story of Uzziah, who served God for many years, but in his latter years, he entered the temple, offered sacrifices, and when the priests objected to that, uh, he extended his royal rage to them, wherein God gave him leprosy, and again, he was removed from being king. Now, why is that? It's because they tried to combine the offices of priest and king, an office that is reserved for one alone, the great high priest, the cornerstone, an office reserved for Christ. So Melchizedek was both king and priest. Many believe uh, that this was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. And he offered, uh, or he, he blessed Abraham. Hear the crescendo that is going on here. We as living stones... And then together as a spiritual household, as holy priests, as royal priests, we have a real position, uh, a position of of great favor with God. So we come to him. We come to him not only as our priest, but as our king. Indeed, even our prophet. Jesus is our prophet, priest, priest and king. All offices rolled into one. We have union with Christ, our great high priest. So we also are holy, that is to say we're set apart and are to function as a priest. What are some of the characteristics of of, of, of being a priest? Uh, In the Levitical priest, they they, uh, offered uh, physical sacrifices uh, but we're going to be, see that this is a little bit different for us. So some of those characteristics apply to us also as believers. Uh, being a priest is an elect privilege. It's something that God has chosen. Again, verse 9, but you are a chosen race. It's an elect privilege. We are forgiven. Cleansed of sin. So the priests went through the ritual washings. We have forgiveness of sin. We are to be servants. We're clothed for service. Isaiah 61 speaks of the righteous robes of Christ. That is, the the deeds of Christ in obeying all the law. We're clothed with the righteous robes of Christ. It's part of our salvation. We are anointed for uh, service anointed from the Holy One since we are chosen, and we are prepared for service. So we're here under the preaching of God's Word. Uh, We're here where we grow and mature, and we're prepared to give a testimony of the hope that is within us. We are to love God. The priest honors God's Word. It's the living, enduring, pure milk uh, by which we grow. And we walk with God, walk by the Spirit. We have communion with God. And unbelievably, we have access to the throne room of God through prayer. Even as 
in, in, the, in the priesthood, once a year, one was chosen to go into the Holy of Holies because there was a separation. That dividing wall of separation has been removed. We can enter into the throne room of God through prayer. And how often do we not take advantage of that great privilege? A priest not only loves God, but he loves others. He influences sinners. And this would be a sermon for, for next time, but in verse 12, it says, We are to conduct ourselves among the Gentiles honorably, so that the things in which they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good days, deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We influence sinners. A priest is to have a gentle spirit. How often do we read about the restoration of a brother that we are to do? It's part of our work to restore a brother or the believing wife who, uh, by her behavior, brings a husband uh, to salvation. A priest is a messenger of God. Second Timothy chapter 4, we read about that we are to preach the word we are to be prepared in season and out of season. We are to rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and careful instruction. We are to preach the word. Not unlike uh, verse 9 where it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Be prepared. I think also Romans 10 says that uh, how beautiful are the feet that, that bring the good news of the gospel. You have beautiful feet? Do you share the gospel? Are you inviting people to church? We need to share the gospel, proclaim that which is true. As I said, we have access to God in prayer. A part of our prayer needs to be intercession for others, both within the church and beyond. We are to be mediators, even as Christ mediates on our behalf. An interesting passage in, in Revelation chapter 8. I don't believe I have this on the, on, the, uh, on the screen. What effect do your prayers have? Or more importantly, the prayers of the church? Romans 8 verses, or Revelation 8 verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of of all the saints. Who's that? With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. How important is it to pray? What effect do our prayers have? Our prayers will be poured out in the last days, we have opportunity to make intercession for both believers 
and unbelievers. And it says there in verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the implication is there is that there are sacrifices made that are unacceptable to God. We need to be aware of that. But we are to make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, which is our praises, our gratitude, our adoration, and our affections. It's all we have to offer, our praise and our gratitude. And then we respond in how we live in obeying God's law. But these are acceptable only, only because of what Christ has already done. We come before God in the name of Jesus and on the basis of what he has already done in his life and his death. So Jesus is our great high priest who once for all time offered himself as a sacrifice to save a sinner like you and me. So, where are you? How do you view that cornerstone? Do you reject that cornerstone, precious and choice in the sight of God? Is it a stone of stumbling? It restricts me from doing what I really want to do. You find it offensive? We all have to deal with Jesus. Every knee shall bow. My prayer is that you give consideration to Jesus as the only way to salvation, the only way that that you might uh, be reconciled unto God and pray for God's grace to that end because we can't do it ourselves. Remember, the only sacrifices that we have to offer are praises and our thanksgiving. Or maybe you're one of those in verse 7 that says, so the honor is for you who believe. We are honored. All that I've talked about today is because of what Christ has done. Nothing that we can add to Christ's work. Nothing. And you give praise and honor to God for Christ's work on our behalf. So, let us draw near. Let us come to him. Let us offer acceptable sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And let us give God all the glory. All the glory. Let us pray.